and welcome to the Mic Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, Chief Technology Officer at PlanView and best-selling author of Project to Product, to survive and thrive in the age of digital disruption with the Flow Framework. Joining me today is Steve Beres, advisory partner at Bain & Company, where he's a 30-year veteran of the firm and also happens to be a prolific author. He's the founder of Bain's enterprise technology practice and the co-author of Doing Agile Right, Transformation Without Chaos. Steve has a deep experience in strategy and operating model redesign for technology, data, and analytics, especially in the context of digital strategy and innovation. To top it all off, he's an MIT grad where he was the recipient of the prestigious Compton Prize and has an MBA from Stanford where he was named a Miller Scholar. So with that, I really look forward to us learning Steve's insights on the 30 plus year career trajectory where he's going to tell us all about how to do Agile right and the pitfalls he's seen around that. Steve, welcome to the Project to Product Podcast. It's great to have you here. I think a lot of people know you from, from the great book that you wrote, Doing Agile Right, Transformation Without Chaos. Now, I, I would actually, before we get into all those topics around that, I would just love to dive into uh, some of your history and the fact that you actually started Bain's technology practice back in 1999. So this has been a, a long journey for you. I know it's been a long journey for me, and it's been amazing to see Agility evolve over the over the decades now. Uh, even though I think we both share a perspective that a lot of organizations have created agile teams, but not have not quite become agile yet. So before we get to all those topics, please tell us how how you got there, how you got to Bain, a bit of your own personal history, and and how you actually end up starting one of the most significant technology practices at Bain. Mick, first of all, let me just thank you for inviting me to join your your podcast. Really, uh, really great to be here. And I, I am a big fan of your book, also Project to to Product. Uh, so maybe we can talk about that a little bit a uh, little bit later. But just to address your question, I was the first full time member of Bain's technology practice uh, back in 1999, and I'm talking about doing technology work for companies across industries to help them more effectively achieve their strategies and to operate more, more effectively. Prior to 99, Bain had, had always done work with technology companies, strategy and other types of work with technology companies, but it was uh, almost exclusively on the vendor side until, until around 99 when it became clear that technology was a topic of strategic weight, strategic importance that a firm like Bain was being asked to do by its clients. Uh, and in order to effectively formulate or execute strategy, it probably goes without saying today, it was less obvious in the 90s or certainly in the 80s that technology is a critical, a critical part of that. Uh, however, Starting a new practice on a topic that historically has not been served in a large professional services firm is, is a challenge. And we've, we started first by demonstrating that there was uh, some client demand and that we were able to successfully serve it. We did that in a small scale. We were successful in doing that. And then over time, we just built the, built the practice um, with uh, more and more people and more and more capabilities. 
where today we have a full range of topics that we, we work on around technology, including analytics, uh, data science, uh, data engineering, uh, innovation, so uh, human-centered design, uh, all related to that, certainly digital strategy and advanced uses of, of technology. So it's now a much larger uh, ecosystem and uh, and very, very important part of the service that we bring to our clients. So unlike most agile transformations, which tend to be waterfall, uh, you were actually agile about building the agile practice within Bain. We were. I have to say we didn't call it agile at the time, but like with successful startups, they pretty much have to know how to be agile to, uh, to succeed. And we certainly did our share of pivoting over the years. Okay. And it really was, I guess, that's, the, in terms of the, the customer demand for strategic consultancy, was it was technology becoming, I guess, a, a boardroom SEO topic. So can you just tell us a bit about how that's evolved? Because I think a lot of us, our background on this is needing better ways to deliver, but, but the way you were coming at it, I think, was actually from this becoming a, a, a key company function where, where it wasn't prior to the, the start of this millennium. Yes, it really has to do with technology moving from a back office function that was just required in order to pay your people and issue financial reports and a few other things like that, moving from that realm to one where competitive advantage really rests on technology advantage. And this is even more pronounced in today's era where across every industry, firms are being disrupted by digital natives. Uh, often it is Amazon specifically moving into more and more industries, and we we see now Amazon moving more and more into the largest single industry in the U.S. healthcare and yeah. globally. With uh, first its uh, its en- entrance into the pharmacy space a few years ago, starting with its pill pack acquisition, now it's one medical acquisition. So. Companies across industries are either being disrupted by Amazon or, 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 or someone uh, from Amazon's ilk, or they're worried about being disrupted by Amazon. And they ask themselves, how can we stay competitive against a firm that seems to be able to pull new technology capabilities out of the air like magic versus the speed that we work? And, and that is what we are really helping companies do. So we're working with an airline, for example, that is used to the kind of customer service that our our customer experience that someone might get with Uber, you know, kind of instant availability, real-time information, real-time response, and historically airlines haven't often had that kind of information available for, for their customers. And our retailers might be the most obvious one that uh, as Amazon launched new, more and more capabilities, traditional bricks and mortar retailers were very, very slow to catch up to them. So transforming their technology functions to agile and the broader changes that need to occur in the overall enterprise is really integral to allowing them to compete today and to innovate at the speed they need to to keep up with changing customer demands, changing competitor offerings and, and, and the evolving market. Right. So, and I think I'll, I'll, I'll oversimplify my view on this, but I think we've, we've seen a lot, a lot of the organizations I work with, they've basically put in place agile teams and technology functions, but 
in terms of where, if you now contrast Amazon's operating model, which has been you know, documented some in books like Working Backwards and the like, to the operating model of these larger enterprises, that to me seems, and I guess a question for you, like there's a, a much more stark difference between how these companies operate. So is it, where, where do you see the, and I guess how have you seen this evolve over the years, but I think agile practices that have you know, worked at the technology and team level, where do you see them at in terms of where they are at the, at the organization, the technology organization overall, the, the company level? Yes. Well, now you're really getting to the heart of why we wrote Doing Agile Right, because we saw so many companies with hundreds, sometimes thousands of Agile teams, but those enterprises weren't becoming Agile in themselves. So, you know, watch the paradox. All these Agile teams seeming to do things much more rapidly and, and being customer focused, et cetera, yet the ultimate changes that the companies are trying to achieve were not occurring all that much faster. So what we found was that even if agile teams within themselves are working according to all the best practices you could imagine with the right roles and ceremonies and so forth, they wouldn't be effective if they didn't have a broader set of what we refer to as enablers helping them in that journey. And it's everything from culture, psychological safety is an off-use term around that. So the teams need to feel that they that they are empowered and are trusted and can experiment and sometimes fail in the in the pursuit of something new and learn from it and improve without that having a negative consequence. So culture extremely important in the leadership to promote that culture something we call the management system, how planning, uh, budgeting, funding, and then management reviewing, how all that is done. Technology teams in particular are most effective when they work uh, in persistent teams for long periods of time, being driven by objectives, business and customer objectives but being given a lot of flexibility in how to achieve those objectives. That's in contrast with fixed code projects that are inflexible and are often not at all what, what the customer wants. So, uh, but that's a big change for the CFO who's used to approving projects. And now we're saying, no, we actually want you to fund 500 teams in all these different areas in this structure and, and scope, et cetera, and agree team by team what outcome. Are you looking for that team to produce, and how does that roll up to achieve the enterprise outcomes? It's a huge, it's a huge uh, transformation, but it is enormously impactful in the value those teams can deliver. And there's things like talent strategy. If you don't have people with the right skills, or you have an outsourcing strategy for roles that require trust of others in the organization to be effective, but you're never going to do that with, 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 a, with a contractor versus an employee. So there's all these other things that need to be in place for those teams to be effective. And we found that most organizations had relatively few of those in place, and that's why they weren't getting, getting the results. And of course, if you do have hundreds of agile teams, they have to be, they're going to have some interdependencies. You need a way to coordinate those interdependencies. First, you want to minimize them, but to the extent you still have them, you need to coordinate them so the teams are working in concert towards uh, the enterprise objectives. 
And so, just because I think you're hitting on some of the key points that, that I certainly see here in terms of organizations moving away from you know doing agile to to actually innovation, rapid feedback cycles, and 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 becoming great technology companies. So the the crux I've seen is is more at there's this desire at the top, obviously, right, to to become innovators, to gain that competitive advantage, to turn. Technology from a cost center to a profit center, all these these kinds of things that you've been helping organizations do over the last two decades. But that I'd like to dig into some of what you wrote and some of what you summarized in doing agile right around this management system, because I do think that's that's one of the cruxes that existing management systems are being applied to agile technology initiatives, or at least to companies want to become more agile. But the metrics, the incentive structures, the organizational structures, they're mismatched, right? I think one of the examples is one you give, which is persistent teams, right? Project funding does not yield persistent teams. It yields requirements being thrown over the fence and, and not providing that, that kind of autonomy or flexibility on achieving company objectives or driving, driving key results that the business is after. So could you just dig into your experience working with, because I'm sure you've, you've experienced a lot of this, right? Is, we're taking an existing management system that's that's really been optimized for very different ways of doing work and for IT as as this this back office cost center. Just take us through how you've the problems that you've seen. And then again, I think what's what's amazing about doing Agile Right is some of the guidance that you have for how to change this. Sure. Uh, Mick. So I'll go back to uh, briefly having mentioned uh, an airline example. I'll talk more about that airline. They were a few years into using Agile, and they had something like 300 Agile teams going through all the ceremonies and sprints and having product owners and scrum masters and so forth. But they were working in projects. There were hundreds of projects a year being approved. Uh, they were spending millions of dollars just in the time to create business cases. And not only was that wasted money, but it was wasted capacity of some of the very same people that they wanted to be developing capabilities, because those people had to do a lot of the estimating, a lot of the planning for those business cases. And we helped them move to a series of persistent teams covering each of the major areas that they're responsible for. So you know, crew management and cargo and ticket sales and, and so forth, very much with a customer focus to these areas. So they would be thinking about structuring the team in a way to meet a particular customer need, whether that was an external uh, consumer that would be flying on the airline or one of the employees, like the experience for flight attendants and how they would get the information they need to do their job or how they would ask for vacation or all the other things about it. And by orienting towards a customer perspective and structuring these teams, it also made it easier to think about the value that those teams would create because you can think about the value for a particular constituency performing a particular a particular function. So how do we how did how were they able to, to do that? It was a huge change for the CFO in particular because uh, CFOs are very accustomed to the security they get from projects. They're discrete. They have cost estimates. They have benefit estimates associated with them. You can do an ROI calculation. 
Okay, you can look at that versus your hurdle rate. It's a way that 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 finance people and even broader sets of executives and boards are very comfortable working. Now we're saying, well, we're not going to actually tell you any of that up front. We're going to ask you to spend half a billion dollars funding these several hundred persistent teams. We can't tell you exactly what you're going to get, and we're going to not can't. For sure, we can't tell you what they're going to do, but trust us. <laughs> that's a big. That's a big change. And typically, most companies in this airline also started with just a subset of teams that was more of a. I don't want to call it an experiment, but it was it was perhaps a trial, working in that way. And what we were able to do was to show we actually are going to give you better information than you had before. It's just going to come in a different form. So let's say for the flight attendant experience, we're going to ask for two teams to work on that. We can tell you what it's going to cost because we know how much two teams for a year or per year cost. And we know we're trying to reduce turnover. We're trying to increase utilization. We're trying to increase uh, flight attendant satisfaction. So we can set goals for each of those things and we can develop hypotheses for how we're going to move the needle on those metrics. And then we're going to start working. And in the first three months, we're going to come back and you, we're going to measure these things. And you'll see how much money we spent. That was pretty easy to predict up front. Maybe we had some additional costs and some extra software or a contractor we weren't expecting, but you'll know exactly what we spent. And we'll be able to show you the results of that. A big mindset shift for the teams was you can't work on something for 18 months before you get benefit. It's not like the project world anymore. Yeah. You have to re-earn your money every every three months or at least show great confidence that you're using it appropriately. So the team started thinking about how do we bite off smaller changes at a time so that we can get them in the field and get them to have impact much more quickly. And the airline was successful in doing this. And they these teams demonstrated they could create value measurable value in a shorter period of time. And by focusing on the things that they knew, because they were very close to the customer or the internal customer that were most important to them, they could prioritize the most valuable changes up front. It was sort of unfair. They were, hey, you're cherry picking, you're doing the most valuable things, but not all that else. Well, yes, that's exactly the point. We're going to do those first. We're going to get the value hey, we may learn from that other valuable things. We weren't even thinking about that. We weren't even thinking about before. And these other things we've sort of had in mind for this big project we've put aside and stopped and stopped because we were moving to this new model. We realized they weren't that important. We're not going to even do them. So this was a huge unlock of value for the airline. They were able to, they were somewhat behind a couple of their competitors and capabilities. They were able to really catch up and, uh, and not spend any more money, just spend the money they were spending much more, much more wisely. And uh, because of the, that initial success, the CFO and, and CEO and board, because the board was, had visibility to many of these large programs also, they were able to make that transition to a full product team model. Uh, it's been a tremendous uh, benefit for them. And so... 
and obviously that, that, that's that's great to hear. And I think the the key thing is you know you you manage to help the CFO make that leap. And I think we've seen across organizations that how critical finance and the CFO are, are to this, right? Because as you said, Steve, this this sense of security that that the CFO and that finance has from the old way of doing things, it's it's well established. It's there. You know, just unfortunately, we know it's not what it takes to to drive innovation and market capture and and competitive advantage in technology. So how you managed to get the CFO to take the leap, and you know you mentioned that some of the comfort that they needed from understanding cost structures they could get from a capacity persistent team model, right? So I'd like to actually decompose b- both of those, right? Because I think this is what's what's happening across the industry right now is is, is how to help finance, how to help uh, EPMOs and others make this leap, which fundamentally we know will get them to value faster, but which a lot of organizations have trouble making, and of course this. Causes this massive disconnect between the way the technology and agile teams want to work and and the the management system for the company. And tell us how did you actually get them to make that leap to to think it through and uh, basically accounting for capacity based rather than than project based funding. And then the sorts of business metrics is that something that the CFO led? Did the CEO get involved? Did the lines of business get involved? What was the formula that you applied? Great questions. So first, given the CFO and, and and finance staff to think differently, there were a few different parts to that. One was introducing them to other companies that had made this transition already, so they could see, yes, this other firm, other people are in the same mindset you were, and now look what they're doing, look at the success they've had, so that's, that's the first thing. Of course, you know, maybe that's another industry or somewhat different than, than this firm. You know, can this really work with us is, is the next question that comes up in executive's right. mind. So starting small, as I suggested, demonstrating the value was the other piece. So we got them over the hurdle of trying something by saying, hey, it works for other people and it has some big benefits. And then we got them over the hurdle of scaling by demonstrating in a smaller way that it, it does work uh, within, within the company. Because you, you, you managed to show them what good looks like, and the fact that it has it does work, right? And it, it works in these other organizations. But then, did they need to make a leap in terms of how they measure, uh, and how they measure again uh, the cost side as well as the value side, those business metrics that that you mentioned? So, did that get integrated into their reporting system? How how did that work? So, first of all, one of the reasons why. The airline brought us in is because of lack of transparency, cost transparency for the technology organization. Mm-hmm. They they didn't really understand how the different cost categories are rolling up into different types of work. There are very large infrastructure costs that were kind of spread like peanut butter over all the various teams, and there wasn't a lot of visibility to how much of the money was being spent. So part of what we help them do is move to a cost management, cost transparency system using one of the software vendors that, that provide that service and helping them move into that model just to get a very granular sense of where they were spending money in a full stack basis. So a given team, not just the, the engineers on the team, but all the other resources they were consuming in order to achieve their output in terms of infrastructure and other, and other support. So that was on the cost side. Another concern that we needed to overcome was capitalization. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a big concern when you start mixing uh, operations or kind of keep the lights on costs with capital projects in the same team, which is a very important part of 
how persistent agile teams should work. And we help them think through the mechanics of how they would figure out what work was operating cost versus capex. And uh, that simply involved tagging stories with mm. the, the purpose of what they were. And it wasn't almost any extra work for the team, but then out the back end, through that flow of data coming out of the agile management system, they were able to come up with very good capital versus operating cost uh, splits. Then on the benefit side, it did involve setting up ways to measure various types of benefits directly or indirectly on an ongoing basis. So data would have to come from various systems, again, using this all came into uh, another, another software package around OKRs. And it, I, I'll go back to the flight attendant example. So flight attendant turnover that was coming from an HR system that needed to be imported in, flight attendant satisfaction that came from periodic survey data that had to come in, uh, flight attendant utilization that came from a crew operation system that had to be imported in. But you can see that all of these things are measurable and in fact are being measured in various places. The important part is to be able to bring them all together and then to report on them and tie people's performance to the achievement of those of those metrics. So that is, uh, you know, that was a very important part of making this whole thing work. But that's what they were able to, to bring together. Okay, and I, and I assume you actually the result of this was actually more transparency, right? The fact that capex versus opex were being tagged at the story level would have made the finance team realize that they're actually getting getting better and more direct visibility into the work rather than what was happening before. Exactly. And, and their fear that they wouldn't be able to capitalize as much or that right. capitalization wouldn't hold up under audit, those all turned out to be unfounded fears because they actually were able to develop a very fact-based, you know, traceable system for, for, those, uh, the, for that accounting. Okay, amazing. And I think this is... So now I want to jump into the... Because I think you've outlined a lot of this into the... Into something I find highly effective is components of an agile business system, right? This is so I think we're we're touching on that planning and budgeting, reviewing, and some of the structure aspects of this. But to, you know, take us through some of that because I think you were you know this is I think what's really effective about the way you outline that is that these are and you know in in the diagram I think I encourage we'll make sure to link this in the materials. Uh, what this looks like is these sliders between you know more static or more chaotic modes in terms of how things are agile. But but take us through some of that, right? Because it's it, it sounds like you didn't take them all the way to the right where it's a wild west free for all, but so right. it's a deliberate change and a step where you'll actually have some of that Visibility that you know you need today, capex versus opex, but where the teams will be able to work work the way teams want to work with with the autonomy of creating and working stories and cherry picking the next most valuable thing. Yes, I mean we speak a lot in our book about balance and how an agile enterprise, which to us is is a firm that achieves the optimal use of of, of agile, how it does that balancing between on the one end, kind of rigidity, bureaucracy, et cetera, and the other end, chaos, you, you, you want to be in the middle. You want to have controlled change and productive change for, for the company, but still being able to main, maintain controls in, in how the business is, is operated. Um, let me give another, another example that might help bring this to light. This is related to a bank we were working with. And banking is, I'm sure you know, is a highly regulated industry. And this example relates to any any highly regulated industry. 
the technology teams were being slowed down dramatically by the compliance function, which is the group that determines that whenever software is released, it fits with all the various rules, regulations, and policies of the bank or the bank is subject to, and therefore is not going to get the bank into trouble or create any headlines. Well, I'd say most banks have historically erred on the side of too much caution <laughs> in the sense that they really, really move very slowly as a result of this. They would develop, they might develop uh, a new function, a new capability within given customer screen or whatever it was they were doing in weeks, but it could take you know months to get that approved to be released because it, it needs to go through a variety of different compliance reviews. And what we helped the bank do is just turn that whole process on its head. Instead of compliance being a separate function that receives kind of draft software, reviews it in some kind of queue, and then comes out the other end and says yes or no, and if no, what's wrong with it, which slowed things down and often caused a lot of rework. They Instead, the compliance people started mapping to groups of teams. So a given compliant per compliance person might be responsible for six or eight agile teams and related, doing related work. And instead of just checking that work at the end, they worked with them up front. The compliance person said, you know, what do you have com coming up in your backlog for the next three months? Oh, that raises this and this and this compliance risks. And here's how to avoid those risks. So the engineers actually effectively became part of the compliance department because they started to understand what are the things they needed to build into the code the first time. So by the end of what they've written, it, it is compliant every time. And it really sped up the process because there was a trust built up between the engineers and the compliance people. They knew each other. They worked together. They understood each other's uh, jobs and needs. And it really dramatically cut rework because uh, the engineers knew up front what the capo needed to do, what they needed to stay away from in order to make something work. So this, this is really another just important enabler that just like finance and the funding model can be a huge drag on the speed and effectiveness of an agile team and how a company that addresses up front and very proactively can be more compliant. And actually, the compliance group was able to reduce the number of people in the group over time because effectively the engineers were doing some of their role. And, you know, all this just after the fact checking and rechecking was no longer something they needed to do. Yeah. And you know, I think you and I have both seen it, right? This is when when you actually look at removing waste from the system in these ways, right? Where where are things waiting? Why are things being Blocked on compliance. Why are things being blocked on, you know, manual security practices? Those, those sorts of things. Removing waste from the system actually it, it accelerates flow, and this is why this is what we want in the end from Agile, right? So I think again, the I love how you talk about the fact that launching Agile teams is easy, but creating an Agile business that actually knows when there's bottleneck on compliance is and, and can see that bottleneck and can plan for resolving it is the hard part. So the the thing that, that that really strikes me about that story, Steve, is is just how, and this is the same thing as your story of you know the capex opex tagging it with, with tagging it right in the user stories. Is just how the fact that now 
compliance, just like finance before in your previous story, the compliance team, their work got easier, right? We know shifting from project to product can make all the work of all those project reallocations and much easier, right? Because in the end, we're removing waste from, from the management system as a whole, or ideally teaching that system how to spot that waste and, and remove it. So you know, tell us a little bit more about that, because again, I think that there's another spectrum here, right? Where who, who, who should be responsible for that? Where, where do you see that responsibility coming from helping architect and manage that agile business so that these things can be uncovered. Obviously, the, you know, the things you and I have spoken about in the past, the, the things I've tried to do is to, to help make that waste visible, those bottlenecks visible through, through measuring flow and making that a key part of the, of the management system, of the agile business system. How do you help organizations think about this the right way where so often it's, oh, that's the responsibility of that team. But I think that's, that story on compliance and that mapping between compliance people and agile teams, that is, you know, to me, and I'm sure to many listeners, that is that is a beautiful story. So, how do we how do we get organizations to, to see that more quickly? Uh, great question, Mick. We typically see organizations setting up some type of agile uh, center of excellence, agile transformation office, at least for a few years, and then kind of maybe moves into something more more steady state. And the responsibility of this group in the transformation, which to us is, is the few years when you're going through the majority of the change to, to an agile enterprise, it is really creating a backlog of all of these major and minor changes that need to occur to really be fully effective and agile. So somewhere in that backlog, the compliance function ended up on, on that bank's agile transformation office agenda. They said, okay, we need, we, uh, we, we're going to stand up, of course, an agile team to address compliance, and we're going to make it cross-functional. We're going to put some compliance people on it, some, some people from legal, you know, a couple engineers, et cetera, and we're going to crack this problem. And that is the solution that that team came up with. And, and at its peak, I mean, I've seen organizations that have had, you know, 20 agile teams overseeing or driving, not overseeing, but driving their transformation on all these various topics. Now, those teams, they're not all large teams. They might not all be in place for more than a few months, et cetera. But it's really treating the transformation like uh, like an agile initiative and, and figuring out the sequence backlog of creating the highest value. How do you resource it? And then how do you actually, how do you, how do you execute it? So that's, it's, it's a bit more of a process answer, but that's actually how, how it gets done. And then over time, that transitions into off some, an organization that's often called an Agile Center of Excellence that's constantly monitoring and tweaking the model. And obviously, they're not doing that on their own. They're, they're rolling up what teams are seeing, what scrum masters are seeing, et cetera, uh, about impediments or opportunities to, uh, to improve the model. Yeah, and I think, so this is sort of innate in how you think about these agile business systems, but I think, tell me what you think of this, but I think one of the things that, that I got, and a lot of us got out of you know, Gene Kim's work, out of the goal and the like, is that improvement of daily work is, is as important as daily work, right? And so many of the management systems we have today are just about prioritizing and scheduled daily work. There's, there's nothing first class in the system around the improvement of daily work. You just gave a great example of a way of structuring that. Yes, look, 
every, uh, if you just get down to the basics, every agile team at the end of a sprint is hopefully doing a, a sprint uh, review, uh, but also a sprint retrospective. And, you know, the former being about improving the product and the latter being about improving the process. So that just scales and should scale to the entire enterprise. Right. Where, where all those individual ideas are coming up, they're being synthesized, patterns are being looked for, and that's what, you know, sometimes there's a chief scrum master who is responsible for that. Sometimes it's, it's a head of an agile COE. But however, whatever process or structure an organization sets up, that continuous learning and improvement journey is what every agile enterprise needs to needs to do to, to, to be effective. A really important part of this as it relates to technology teams is the business technology dialogue, the ability for these groups to put themselves in each other's shoes and to together do something that neither group could do separately in creating great software and great capabilities. And you started to talk a little bit about, about flow metrics and so forth from, uh, from project to product. I was just struck by, when, when I first read the book, what a great framework it was for creating that business technology dialogue to take things that the technologists know intuitively. Like if you don't invest in technical debt reduction, it's going to slow down your delivery of features over time. It's going to increase your number of bugs and unplanned work. But to put that in the simple, quantified model that allows you to have a discussion with non-technical business people about those trade-offs. Because of course, the, the doom loop that many companies get into is, I just want features, you know, we'll just keep putting off all that other stuff. <laughs> and uh, it's a way to show, hey, look, you know, these teams, they've been spending 30% of the time in technical debt reduction. And look, they have very, very few bugs. So they actually get 65% towards features. Um, but this other team that was trying to spend 95% of its time on features, well, number one, look at the velocity. And number two, look at all the unplanned work that's constantly constantly happening and it's a way to to uh to quantify what historically were just qualitative kind of trust me kind of discussions and now you can actually show instead of just tell and uh it, it's a huge uh, benefit i think for organizations that, that adopt these metrics no that's great to hear and i think that the you know the whole goal around that was what, to be able to connect up those things that that were invisible, right? Because when when the conversation is we need to invest in tech debt on on the technology side, and then the business side is we need to reduce flight debt and turnover. If those are disconnected, if there's not, we, if we can't draw that line, those conversations they, they go sideways, right? Whereas if we can actually get these you know these these new features implemented or these new scheduling systems or a better user experience implemented by reducing tech debt in this planning window uh, and drive that through flight and turnover all of a sudden it's a different conversation and so i think you know what doing agile rights been so effective around is is actually using that language of the business of executives and doing that right and you've told a couple key stories so steve the, the thing that that you've now got in my head is we always assume that that improvement cycle for agile teams, that sprint retrospective that every agile team does, that that would scale up to the business, right? That you'd have scrum of scrums and you'd have this, this improvement process. But part of my goal is, as you just touched on with project to product, is that that same kind of thinking goes into the business side as well, right? Because if these two 
parts are not thinking the same way, that improvement can happen because often the improvement is by connecting compliance to agile teams, right? And looking at how each value stream should be responsible for helping automate some of its own compliance and so on and working directly with that team. So I feel like it, you know, there's almost like, like this glass ceiling effect, right? Where Scrum of Scrum's got us so far. But the way that you approach this is, is actually to say that there's this, this, is, this is the responsibility of the business. That we do need to communicate the, these things in a way that makes sense to the CFO. That the way that we do tracking in agile tools actually needs to be aware of how, how CapEx and OpEx works. So can you just, as, as we start to wrap up, Tell us how you think at the most the most senior levels of the organization how this should work. Is it the CEO's responsibility? Is it the CFO? Of you know, I think you and I have both seen CFOs become champions for these changes and help get these transformations to move much more quickly. So, what what have been your key learnings on that? Because I know I think we've also seen when it's just technology for technology's sake and it's all limited to the technology organization, things do tend to meander and go sideways. So, who, whose responsibility is it, and how do we get them thinking more along these lines? Yes. Well, ultimately, Mick, the success of any company is is the responsibility of the CEO first and foremost. That is that is their core job. But in a way, it's the responsibility of every single employee in the company also. So it's a question of being able to achieve engagement at all at all the levels of the company. And, uh, and, and, a, and a feeling of responsibility, ultimately, at all the levels of the company. Everyone is trying to deliver for their customers and their shareholders. And Agile is a better method for doing the innovation that's required in that, in that delivery for their, their key stakeholders. The, the simplest answer is it, it ultimately needs to occur at all levels. Now, uh, the practical answer is that organizations don't have to start with their C-suite being big agile proponents. There can be pockets of agile success that don't depend on that. You kind of work around whatever rules and, and, and systems that are holding you up in the short term. But I've never seen a company become an agile enterprise without the CEO supporting it and without the C-suite really seeing that as one of their important missions in, 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 in their jobs. Today, uh, we were meeting with the CEO and his direct reports of a financial services company, and they've been using Agile for a number of years, but this was the first discussion where the CEO really expressed to his leadership team his desire to really use agile ubiquitously within the company. Now, when I say ubiquitously, I don't, I don't mean you know for running the call center uh, and having you know, forming forming the uh, you know the back office people and scrum teams to do the operations work, but but to use agile where we believe it should be used for anything related to innovation. That typically includes software development, product development, anything where you're creating something new, where what you're creating isn't isn't known from the start, and where Iterative and customer feedback is uh, is, is very valuable in, in, in building it, but specifically the person who's driving it. Typically, there's someone in the C-suite who's really taken on as their particular mission. It's often the CIO or the CTO, but not always. Sometimes it is the CFO, and sometimes a few, not as many I've seen, but a few places the CEO really views it as as their personal mission. 
But at a minimum, they have to see it as important and understand the part they play and support typically one of their direct reports and, and having it be their kind of day-to-day personal mission along with their, their other responsibilities. That's awesome. And I think, you know, one of the in your agile business system, one of the one of the sliders I love is that is that leadership and culture, right? It's funnily that that comes from the CEO and from the C suite. And the the spectrum, I love how you have it from you know all the way from authoritarian Taylorism to benign neglect, right? And it's it's yes. just it's too easy to go one direction or the other. But this culture of learning, unleashing, improvement—these are, to use your words, ultimately that is that is the responsibility of the, of the CEO of the of the leadership team, right? So I think you and, and treating that as a that agile journey as itself an agile initiative. You mm-hmm. know, the agile is a huge change and innovation effort, and using agile principles to pursue it is is obviously the way we would propose it's going to be most successful. Excellent. No, that that was that was fantastic, Steve. So then now, as we wrap up, do I, you know, I, I just wonder what it was like with doing Agile right. What you've learned since then. What was like launching the book in the pandemic? I can't imagine uh, that would have been easy. But just leave us with you know what you've that well a bit of, on that experience, but but what you've learned since then and and what you plan on doing next. We were frankly concerned launching the book in uh, May of 2020. It was. Uh, you know, just about the point everyone realized, oh my goodness, this is not going away anytime soon. Uh, no one knew, was this going to be a recession, a depression, what? And we debated uh, with our publisher, Harvard Business Review Press, you know, yes or no. And we fortunately all came to the conclusion of, yes, we should launch it as planned in May 2020. And boy, are we glad that we did. Because it turns out, going through a pandemic requires enormous change (laughs) by companies and enormous innovation and flexibility and agility. And we had a fantastic reception of the book in part, I think, because companies realized they had to change the way that they were working in order to just keep up with the, the rapid transformations going on in the economy and customer buying patterns and and so forth. So that was that was very very exciting. What we've learned since then really as as companies have used our book as we've talked to more and more companies improving agile and, and, and in that journey is that companies really can in any kind of organization nonprofits we're working with on on, on agility uh, it is a very difficult journey. There's so much that needs to change about the historical hierarchical bureaucracy, which is the way businesses and other large organizations have been organized since the British Empire in the late 1800s. Uh, you know, changing that is very difficult and challenging, but those organizations that have made good progress on that journey are seeing extraordinary results and it gives us the motivation to wanting to keep working with more of them and helping more and more of them you know achieve those benefits and, and succeed in that journey that's excellent Steve. and I do encourage everyone to check out doing agile right transformation without chaos as I think there's there's just a ton of amazing experience and really actionable approaches that you can share with your leadership team if you're having some of the, <laughs> some of the frustrations and you want to see some of these results that that's Steve related here so Steve with that any closing thoughts I had a closing thought but I don't know if it's for the air uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, no I, I, I don't think I have
I would just say just a message to your listeners who I know are at all levels within organizations. And it may often feel like there are so many things out of your control that are, that are slowing you down or, or keeping you from succeeding. Focus on what's within your control and focus on not only making your teams more successful, but becoming examples that others can learn from. And hang in there. Uh, it can be frustrating at times, but it's worth the journey. And I, I admire everyone who's, uh, who's on that journey and trying to uh, do better for their customers, their, uh, their, their teams, and, uh, and the world around them. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Steve. And uh, please check out the, the materials for Steve's work and some of, the, some of the concepts that we touched on, some of the additional links. So thank you, Steve. And thank you, Mick. Really, uh, really great being here today. Thank you to Steve Barras for sharing some of his expertise with us today. For more, follow me and my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, using the hashtags MitchLess1 or Project or Product. You can also find Steve on LinkedIn. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can search for Project or Product to get the book. And remember that all author proceeds with supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time. <laughs>